And uh, I hope that as we finish up, we'll be able, you'll, you'll be able to see more of the big picture. Because this set of notes that you have uh, is one that I think you can go back to again and again since the whole purpose is to deal with a large-scale argument, the, the basic, basic argument, rather than the little details. And um, you may get details in your reading here and there, but always be able to connect those details with the overall frame of reference. Let's uh, have a word of prayer. Our Father, tonight again, we're so thankful that you have not only written the Word of God into history, but that you have preserved it, and that through the indwelling Holy Spirit, you teach it. We ask now that that teaching ministry operate in our hearts as we seek to feed upon your Word. In Christ's name, amen. Tonight, we're going to work with Appendix C purpose of these appendices is to deal with a little bit in a little bit more detail um, with some of the technical questions that obviously arise in Genesis. I was asked a few evenings ago as to what difference all this made. Um, why bother? And the answer, of course, is, is because true biblical faith is locked into history. The classic passage in the New Testament to show this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And that was one that we dealt with back in the fall when we began. It's the one that we um, I want to remind you of as we can kind of draw the class to a conclusion. Uh, if you'll turn there to 1 Corinthians 15 for a moment, I want you to see how almost subliminally the Apostle Paul utilizes the literal narrative of Genesis to teach the most central doctrines of the Christian faith. No doctrine could be more important than the resurrection of Jesus Christ as far as the New Testament is concerned. And when he deals with this New Testament doctrine of the resurrection of Christ... He insists upon several things that strike you immediately. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16, 17, and 18, you ought to write these verses down, keep them, or at least keep the reference to these verses somewhere handy. Very important verses. These are, this is the classic reference in the New Testament that links religious belief with historic fact. Our generation is a generation that even in evangelical, more so now, in evangelical circles, um, sadly, but in the last 10 or 15 years, it's just leaked into our own camp. This belief that you can talk about Jesus in your heart and you can talk about, I believe in Jesus and you know this works for me and all the rest of it, and at the same time, either never study the Bible and or if you do, cut it out and keep it away from any talk of history and facts. As though the Bible sort of stands by itself 
and isn't talking about anything in the real world. And in here, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul lays it on the line. If the dead don't rise, then Christ isn't raised. And if Christ is not raised, your faith is in vain and you're yet in your sins. Notice he is willing to conclude that if the Bible is factually incorrect, then our faith is in vain. It's a big illusion. And that's why uh, the Bible insists that if the Christian facts aren't facts, if the historical record of the Scripture isn't historical record, then Paul, also in the same passage, down further in verse 32, also draws another conclusion. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead don't rise? And then, very important, last part of verse 32, look at the last clause. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He's quite willing to draw that conclusion. Very willing. In other words, Paul is not the kind of person that says, gee, if the Christian faith is false, it's a neat thing anyway. He doesn't say that. He says, if the Christian faith is false, throw it out. Throw it out. Forget it. But have the courage to draw the behavioral conclusions and the impact that is going to have on your life. Go ahead, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Classic case. It's right there in the text. Right there in the text. So it shows you the contingency of the faith in the sense that the Bible marries the gospel to hard scriptural truths. And here's why. The Bible insists that... God is trustworthy. You remember when we worked with the last of the four events that we studied, the Noahic Covenant. These are the events we've covered this year. Creation, fall, the flood, and the covenant. You remember when we talked about the covenant, we made the point when God enters into a covenant, remember we, we went through the thing about blood sacrifice and there's two parties to the covenant and there are terms to the covenant. So, you have two people that enter, I guess that pen's done with. You have two people that enter into a contract because the word covenant means contract. And a contract is, has terms that can be verified. So in the Bible, when God says something, the terms of this contract, His truthfulness, His veracity, His immutability, His faithfulness is on the line. Is He or is He not telling us the truth? So, when he makes a promise, be it in some historic fact, whether this has occurred, this would be a past statement, this happened, or it could be prophecy talking about a future fact. Will it occur? But in both instances, whether it's past or it's future, 
if it doesn't happen, or it hasn't happened, then God isn't the trustworthy God that he claims to be. That is why, because we deal with a real faith in the Bible. It's not a fake faith. It's not a, quote, religious belief in divorced away from history. Because that is the nature of biblical faith, that is why we say that the text of Scripture must be infallible. Um, I was reminded of this because this is basically a testimony. It's a testimony as a testimony might be in a courtroom. A couple of weeks ago, I was uh, subpoenaed to appear in a murder trial in the county because as an expert witness to certain weather conditions that happened at the time this girl was killed. And it's interesting, of course, the defense attorney sits there and he tries to attack you because he wants to discredit your testimony. So, the, wherever he can get you on some little minutiae, it's all he needs is a little minutiae to introduce a little bit of doubt in the jury that you might possibly must be mistaken. Because if you might possibly be mistaken in this area, you could be mistaken in that area. And that's exactly the argument of the Scripture. The argument of Scripture is that God is perfect. It is man that is imperfect. And this is why the Bible is quite willing, so to speak, to take on the world. It is open to investigation. And what we have tried to stress throughout this course is that we have seen that it's not just the fact. We have tried to point out time and time again that how you interpret a fact is related to your worldview, to your presuppositions. No such thing as a neutral fact. And when we get down to what we really believe, and we get down to presuppositions and worldviews, it turns out that there are only two. There's the worldview of the scriptures carried down to us through the patriarchs, the Holy Spirit superintending the process, carried down to us today through the patriarchs to whom the Holy Spirit spoke, carried down through not just the patriarchs, the prophets, going all the way back to Noah and his family. Every tribe and every cultural unit that has ever walked the face of this planet after the flood are sons and daughters of Noah. And as such, every culture on earth has at least once in its history had possession of Genesis 1 through 9. Every tribe every culture. They may have buried it, they may have misused it, they may have introduced errors into it, but they had it at one time. So, when we come to this, we find that there are those who believe in the Creator, fundamentalism, the Bible, ancient Israel, and ancient monotheism that survives in some of these tribal areas. Those who deny this wind up as pagans, whether they're ancient pagans with the ancient myths, whether they're Eastern religions, whether it's Western philosophy, whether it's modern theology, ultimately all believe that there's no transcendental distinction between the creator and the creature. 
They ultimately deny this. They say that God and man differ only in size, differ only in magnitude, that man and nature differ only in complexity. They wipe out, wash out all these differences. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul continues to talk about the resurrection, you'll notice that in verse 38 and 39 and 40, he talks about the qualitative, not quantitative, qualitative differences in kinds. He says, all flesh is not the same flesh. There's one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, another of birds, celestial bodies, bodies terrestrial, etc., 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 etc. Verse 42, so then is the resurrection of the dead. In other words, the Bible insists there are these unbridgeable chasms, these categories. And we said when we dealt with Appendix B, we said, well, look, the, the point is that if there are these categories, then salvation makes sense. In other words, the Bible insists that there's those in Adam and there are those in Christ. This is an unbreachable kind. Everybody reproduces after their kinds. Said in modern biological terminology, there are two species of men, spiritually speaking, and there's no evolution between them. There's no transmutation from Adam over to Christ. That's, there's no continuity between Adam and Christ. That's salvation by works. That's satanic. That's always the program of Satan. He wants to add a little bit more and bring in, by human works, merit. And he evolves from Adam into Jesus. But the Bible insists that this breach between Adam and Christ is so profound that only an act equal in magnitude to the origin of the universe is possible. Only by the new creation and the new birth is it possible to shift between Adam and Christ. So, th these are not abstract arguments. It's not an accident that creation and evolution collide. They collide out of fundamental premises that are different, radically different, and very important to the spiritual side of the Bible. Now, in Appendix B that we covered a few nights, a few weeks ago, we dealt with the evolution-creation issue very, very, in a very summary way, there's thousands and thousands of details to get involved with. Obviously, in four or five pages, we're not going to deal with thousands of details. All we wanted to do was to show and summarize for you at the end of the series the fact that there is a difference. And be aware of the difference, that evolution is a modern statement of an ancient idea. And, and something you always want to learn... Don't accept ideas just because you think somebody originated them recently. Be very suspicious of the thought that there's really a new idea. There usually are not any new ideas. There are old ideas with a new set of clothes. And evolution is not a new idea, and it did not begin with Charles Darwin. It began with the first pagan belief in Adam's day. And it is the belief in the continuity of being that all this, this gradation from gods and the goddesses to man to animals to rocks and so forth, the continuity of being. 
What Darwin did is he added a visualizable method of propagating upward on the chain. Whereas in ancient paganism, it was always coming down the chain. So he changed the direction of the arrow, but he didn't change the idea. Creationism holds that from the very beginning, God created kinds. And these kinds have never been transgressed. That God made man, God made birds, God made reptiles, God made mammals, etc., etc., etc. And what are these kinds? What do they correspond to? Not necessarily the modern species. Species originally, you know, were animals that could interbreed and animals that couldn't interbreed were somehow not part of that species. The problem with that definition is, from our point of view as Christians and creationists, is that we don't know how reproduction capabilities have deteriorated over time due to the fall. So, in a larger sense, using the word kind and tracking it through the Mosaic uh, law code and so on, several biologists who are Christians have come to the conclusion that the nearest thing that kinds corresponds to with what you learn in school is probably the idea of order or family. In any case, there are these kinds. And within the kinds, there can be adaptation. There can be variation. After all, if it weren't for this, how do we explain the ark? Noah took aboard a limited set of creatures, two of every kind. Didn't take millions of animals. He took two of every kind, representative gene pool. And out of that representative gene pool has diverged the diversity we now observe. So it's not true that creationism holds to an absolute fixity. No creationist I know has ever taught that, but that's the caricature you get from the evolutionists. Okay, so that was Appendix B. And we tried to show why when the text says kinds exist, it has all kinds of implications spiritually. We just saw one in 1 Corinthians 15. And so as Christians who believe that our God is trustworthy, we expect not to see evolution across the kind boundaries. And when somebody teaches us that that happened, it's going to cause tension. So we deny that. We say, wait a minute, we want to investigate the facts. And therefore, it's been the struggle going on and we gave you the history of it. The struggle between the creationists and the evolutionists is not going to go away tomorrow. It's not going to go away next week. It's not going to go away in the next century if Christ tarries. It is going to go on and on and on until God settles the question at the second advent. And there will be no continuity of being between heaven and hell. So, he will decide that question very clearly. Then in Appendix C that we're now in, we decide to take up another question. And that question is the question of the age of the world, age of the universe, and so on. How do we measure age? And we said, looking back at another very familiar slide, we said that you can plot the knowledge of man. Remember, we always show a graph. Here's time, increasing values of time, increasing values of space. And all human experience can be 
described as occurring in some finite box. All direct observation are right here. They can be somewhat extended. You can see smaller and smaller things in space with, with microscopes. You can see larger and larger things with telescopes. You can see quicker and quicker things with high-speed photography. But there's something very unique about the right side of the box. And that is that unless you have a time machine, you cannot observe the future. And you cannot observe the past if the past lies beyond your observational powers. The only way you can observe the past is if and only if there's a set of people who have recorded in diary form data of observation. Thus, you can only go back to the limit of this line, which is the limit of all historical records. So therefore, whenever we talk about prehistoric history, that is, history that supposedly existed before there was a record, we have to deal with speculation. We have got to. The only way you can access and cross that barrier is by conjecture. Always. You may, may be a very reasonable conjecture, it may be a, a fundamental assumption, but it's always an assumption. And I want to emphasize this to you because this goes on and on and on everywhere you read today. We have something about the ancient past that supposedly was prehistoric. Let's locate a point out there. And we'll call that point A. And let's locate a point over in here where we can observe as point B. What we... This is the semantic trick that's being done today. You will read in newspaper reports, books, about something called a fact. And the fact makes no distinguishment between A and B. As Christians, you can't afford to do that. As Christians, you have to be alert that A and B cannot be factual in the same sense of the word fact. One is verifiable by direct observation. The other one is not, no matter who you are, no matter how much budget you have, no matter how many scientific instruments you have, you are not directly observing the past, except by modeling it and through conjecture. So, beware of this. This is a little game that's being played. You will get it in the classroom, you will get it in the news media, you will get it in your TV, you will get it in books, you will get it in speeches, and so forth. But what you have to do as a Christian is think back to basic categories. Always go back to basics and distinguish in your mind what is a fact in the sense that it can be verifiable by human observation like B and what cannot be directly verified as point A. Those are not the same factual statements. They cannot be. Structurally, they cannot be the same thing. But what we have today is a, sort of a semantic sleight of hand that goes on, and it's used to terribly discredit Scripture and render the faith of young Christians particularly uh, to, to weaken that faith. So what we've tried to do in Appendix C is to argue two ways. 
first to expose this for what it is, and then to show that the only way you can talk about a fact in the sense of A is by creating some constant based on the data inside the box and projecting it, extrapolating it backwards in time. So you have some constant, any constant, call it C, and you work backwards, you're assuming that that C is always the same. And on that basis, you say, well, now I can know about the fact. And then what we did is we said, how do we test that by the scripture? And we gave an illustration last time of the three observers. And I'll review that just a moment because that's an important illustration. simple one you can all remember. Here we see Adam in the Garden of Eden. For the sake of argument, he is created between 10 o'clock and 10.05 on day six of creation week. So in that interval of time, let's say, God is forming the sand or the dust from the earth, and then at 10.04 and 59 seconds, the dramatic moment comes when God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit breathe into him and he becomes a living creature made in the image of God made uniquely not as some higher chimpanzee who got a mutation in his DNA in the last 3% this is God breathing in to man as an individual creation while this is going on in that five minute interval we have an observer over here pointing his video camera at the whole event. We call that observer, Observer A. Observer A records it on video. The clock in the video viewer is ticking off. He's created a videotape with a time unrolling. At 10.10, out through the east gate of the Garden of Eden, enters Observer B. Observer B is unaware of Observer A. He has no video camera. He has no access because 10.010 in his box, his box here, cuts off at 10.010. He can't get back before 10.10 if there's no other observer there, if there's no camera there, if there's no record there. So he's coming in out of the box. And so, he comes in out of the box, having had an experience in the box, having had all of his data collected inside his own experience, that people grow up. Human growth constant. So he says, I, in order to interpret what happened at 10.05, when I see this grown man standing there in the Garden of Eden, I have to utilize a constant, which in this case is human growth rate. Because I know that works, don't I? I've observed it. So, using my constant of interpretation, the human growth rate, I look at this man standing there in the Garden of Eden and I interpret his age at 25, for sake of argument. Now what has happened is we have a crisis. Now we have a discordant age problem. Because observer A, with a camera, with instruments to measure, claims that Adam at 10.10 is five minutes old. Observer B says that he is 25 years old. Both are using clocks. 
One, however, is in the box. He's factual. Observer B is not a fact, although he claims it's factual. He argues like Time Magazine that surely this is a fact. Surely he's well-read. Why, he has a college degree. That proves that he's well-read. So therefore, Observer B and his clock claims 25 years. Then we said, for the sake of argument, we introduce a third person who also walks into the garden at 10.10, Observer C. However, Observer C, while he also knows human growth rate, he is aware of Observer A and the historical record. Now, Observer C has a little problem here because Observer C, unlike Observer B, has access to two conflicting data. What does he do? Which one does he pick? He has two men who honestly can pass a lie detector test and verify. Is Observer B lying? Observer B has no knowledge whatsoever of a creation of man. All he sees is Adam. Is he sincere? Absolutely. Observer B is not lying. Observer B is not trying to be deceitful. Observer B is just doing what comes naturally. What about Observer A? Observer A tells Observer C, look, I saw it with my own eyes. This is an observation. This is data. Look at my camera here. I got my video camera. Let's replay it. And he turns the knobs and he replays it. Look at my video camera. Look at the clock there. What do you see? How, if you are Observer C, do you make the decision to follow A or B? Do you see that this involves some basic philosophy here? That you've got to make a choice. Well, you see what you see on that videotape. You have seen a discontinuity of a radical nature in natural processes. A discontinuity you have no other evidence for believing. A discontinuity that is so incredible that it just floors you to conceive of this. Your mouth drops open as you look at that videotape, as you look at the historical record. You scratch your head and you say to yourself, I can't explain this. How did this happen? And then you have to make a choice. Whether you're going to, in the overall worldview of possibilities, whether you are going to believe what in your heart you know isn't man-made, because after all, observer C is made in God's image. He's not a neutral person, according to Romans chapter 1. He has to come into contact with the very depths of his soul. Yes, finally, I am a creature. And finally, yes, yes, this surely is the work of the Creator. Or, he can take the course that Adam and Eve said. Why, I don't really believe the Word of God. I have to subject the Word of God to something higher than itself. I have to create a test over against the Word of God must be measured. I will create a higher authority. We will check whether this is empirically verifiable. He can't verify it, but he says, on the basis of probability of my database, I rule out A because it's just so incredible that it must be faked. Spielberg must have been busy here. A special effects studio. But surely this can't be real history. And A must be confused. Maybe he was smoking something. So he, sitting there as an intellectual being, sees the data and rejects it. Now that's very parallel to what goes on. And so what we did last time is introduce you to some of the terrestrial clocks. 
We looked on page 116 and 117 of the notes, and we said that even if you accept the observer B argument that there are these constants, that things aren't quite so neat as the textbooks would have you believe. Because when you get to look at the data, all of these clocks that are listed here are clocks that presume there's a constant involved. have to have a constant. The clock itself has to be constant. Here's one, and I picked out several of them. These are numbers rated on a scale of 0 to 5 by a Ph.D. physicist who was a Bible-believing Christian who looked at a lot of the, the papers and the reports that have been written on each one of these methods, and he's rating them on, on a scale of which is a pretty powerful argument, a 5, which is a lesser argument, a 4, a 3, a 2, and a 1. And one of the arguments that he rates is the fact that recorded history itself has an age no greater than 5,000 years. If man was around, why aren't there records that go back before 5,000 years? Where are these records? Man's been around for a million years. You mean he only learned language 5,000 years ago? Where are the records? They don't exist. Population growth. Another very powerful argument. All you need to see this argument, folks, is a piece of logarithmic graph paper. And what we said last time is you take your logarithmic graph paper. Everybody knows what logarithmic graph paper is? If you don't, I have a math teacher in the front row, and she'd be glad to show you how you can do logarithmic calculations. But let me, let me just show, for those who might have never run across this before, Let's suppose that we have this logarithmic scale gets smaller on the left and time this way. What we want to do is we want to plot growth rate, okay, because we've got to have a constant. And we've picked as our constant in this clock the rate of human population growth. Do we know what that is? Well, yes, we have a subset of the human race that we know. Because we know in the year 2000 B.C., there was one and only one Jew. We know that in 1996, there are N number of Jews. And therefore, we can plot a line on that logarithmic paper that plots the growth of the Jews. Now, this is a very good tool to use because the Jews have been subject to numerous times in history when they've been eradicated almost from history. So we're being very conservative in this clock. And so using that clock, as we said last time, it turns out that if you take the same N, or the same population, we'll call it M, of the total human race, and you project it back with the same curve rate, you come out with something like 4,000, whatever he comes out with on that thing, years. Now, we have done exactly what other people do, we have taken something which we believed with all our heart to be a constant, we've run it backwards, and we've seen that we can plot an age. So we went through last time all these terrestrial indicators. We said they're terrestrial indicators because they're all within reach of us on earth. That's why they're called terrestrial clocks. 
there at least the constant is derived directly by observation. In the box, yes, but directly. Tonight, we want to finish Appendix uh, C by going on to non-terrestrial clocks using the same principle. So we're going to look at some of these tonight that would indicate that the solar system has also a young age, at least a lot younger. Keep in mind, these are not absolute clocks. Remember what we're doing here. We're simply taking the methodology of creating a constant, extrapolating it outside of the box, and saying, what time is it? So let's look at some of these. One of the most powerful arguments... There is no known source for material to make comments. No intrusion that has been proved, and no injection of material nearby from outer space into the solar system environment. And the comets are rapidly dying off. They're giving off material, their tail, and therefore their mass is decreasing rapidly. Finally, they break up and disintegrate. If that's so, then it ought to be by taking the total number of comets and the observed decay, we ought to be able to figure out that if there has been no injection of material from outside the solar system into the set of comets that are running around, then how old is the solar system? And when you do the calculation, you get 6,000 years. Slight difference from billions of years. We have other clocks. One of them is this one, which is intriguing, the shrinking sun. Turns out there is a mystery about the sun that men who have been astronomy debate about, and that is it does appear that in the last hundred years the diameter of the sun has shrunk. The sun is shrinking, and it is shrinking because it's utilizing up energy. Eventually it will die. So if the sun is shrinking, and if our measurements are correct and interpretation is correct, and you extrapolate it back, the sun can be no, old, no older than 500,000 years for various reasons get involved in, in, in these clocks. The recession of the moon is another one. The moon gets further and further away from the earth. That's the case, and, the, and it, we know the rate. The, the moon can't have been right banging up against the earth. So that creates another clock that gives us an age of one, billion, one million years. Well, there are a number of things you can do, and creationists have gone through this numerous times. Again, the point is, not all constants show great age. So now what do we have? What this tells us is that we have a selective use of constants. It's not just using constants, it's using select constants that give us long ages. Not constants that give us short ages. Let's look now beyond the solar system at astronomical clocks. And what do these tell us? Because now we're getting further out in space. And by the way, see, all of these clocks, when we start going out into space, the problem here is that we can't directly measure except by light that gets to us. But the problem with that is that we can't check, for example, is the light getting to us distorted? Is its path distorted? Is the rate of speed of light distorted? Anybody been around to measure that, or we just conjecture that? 
We conjecture that. So these clocks are even more speculative and involve a longer chain of conjectures than the terrestrial clocks because they are not only extrapolations in time, they're extrapolations in space. Let's look at some of them. One of those highly rated is the fast burn rate of hot stars. Stars, like the sun, are consuming energy in massive amounts. And their rates of burning have been inferred through conjecture. If that's so, upper bound for stars, like hot stars, is 100,000 years, not millions of years. Here's one that's my favorite. Spiral galaxy argument. Here's what it looks like. Spiral galaxies using inferred, and this is conjecture because we're, we're using the same conjecture that's being used and touted as scientific fact all over the place. Here's, a, here's the problem. The problem with that is there are also galaxies that look like this with clusters of stars here and so on and a bar. Now the problem with that is that since this motion is known, why are there still bars there? Why haven't the bars become part of the spiral bands? What has preserved the bars? And this argument is an argument that gives an upper limit of 100 million years. So, there are lots of clocks. We won't go into all of them, but I just want to show you that not all clocks give the same time. And when somebody gives you this impression, oh, it's factual, oh, all of the data show this, it's not true. All of the data does not show this. I want to conclude the appendix, if you will follow with me in the notes, to two particular models that have recently come into existence by creationists. Dealing or trying to deal with the problem of the age of the universe and how do we explain the fact... Let me, let me put the facts out to you like this. If it's true that we're here, this is the Earth, and we're looking out in space and we see light coming from stars out here that take a million or two million light years away, and we see things happening like explosions and supernova, what are these phenomena if they take a million years for the light to get here? Doesn't that prove that they must be millions of years old? A very strong argument, and it's one that the creationists have not dealt with, we have not dealt with well, uh, but nevertheless, I'm not ashamed to say that. It's just work that needs to be done. I have no fear that an answer will be found, but it is a fact that we haven't done too well in that area because it takes a lot of time and work to put these theories together, and you don't get NSF grants for doing creationist work today. So most of the work, and I'm going to cite these two men as examples, 
These two men have worked on their own. Some of their work has been sponsored by NSF funding as an incidental because they've done some of their work while they were funded in their research. The first one is at the bottom of uh, page 119, Humphrey's Cosmological Water Model. That is available for you in paperback form. It's called Starlight and Time by Master Books. It's a chapter in a forthcoming book by Dr. Humphreys. But you can get it in Christian bookstores or you can order it from Master Books. Master Books, Christian Publishing House in, in I think, Colorado Springs, Colorado. But a bookstore, Christian bookstore will find it for you. Russell Humphreys, Starlight and Time. I quote that. It's at the end note of this chapter. Uh, I think I gave it all bibliography. Yes, on page 123, I give you that book. So that's the bibliography you want. A fascinating little book. Let me just summarize it here in a few minutes. What Dr. Humphreys discovered, first of all, is that the Big Bang theory is largely misunderstood through, uh, through the usual illustrations. Now, maybe I'll unintentionally use this as an illustration of something else. Paula suggested facetiously before class that we were going to have a Big Bang. Um, what I want to do with this weather balloon from my shop here is to illustrate that a thing that Humphreys points out about the Big Bang cosmology. Oftentimes you read in, the, in, a, in a book that the universe was a ball. It was condensed down to a point and it just exploded and became a bigger, ever-expanding ball. Now, I was taught that. And most of the illustrations in science book teach that. But what Dr. Humphreys realized is when he started talking to the real guys in relativistic theory, that's not what the Big Bang is talking about. Big Bang is not talking about the universe shaped in the sphere of a sphere and blowing up like a balloon. It's more sophisticated than that. What the Big Bang is talking about is imagine you are a two-dimensional creature living in the rubber of this balloon. Okay, that's your world. You're living inside the surface of the balloon. You don't see the balloon. You're living inside the rubber, or the whatever it is that's in this thing. Now, what the Big Bang is saying is, as this balloon inflates, I've drawn a series of green points that's not chicken pox on the balloon, but I've given a series of points on the balloon. What happens to the points on the balloon when I inflate the balloon? All the points move away from each other at equal distances, at equal rates. No matter where you draw the point, they all expand away from each other in the same way. What the Big Bang says is if you are an observer living two-dimensionally inside the rubber and you're able to look this way and that way, you don't look this way that way because you're a two-dimensional creature, but you look this way and you look that way, what do you see? Everything moving away from you. That's what the Big Bang is saying. Now, why do I belabor this point? I want to show you something. If you look at the surface of this balloon and think about it for a minute, where is its edge? If you are a creature living inside the rubber, imagine you're a little tiny ant or a mite, and you, you dig your way through this rubber. You can go travel anywhere in, in, the, in the surface. You can't get out of the surface. You can't go inside the balloon. You can't go outside the balloon. But you can go anywhere you want to inside the surface. Is it or is it not possible for you eventually to come back where you came from? You can, can't you? 
you could travel from one of these points inside the rubber all the way around the balloon come back to the point you started. Now that's called a, a finite un, a, a model of the Big Bang. And that's the idea and the theory, and you'll see it propounded, where you could take a rocket ship with sufficient fuel and you could go, you go eventually come back to where you came from by proceeding in a straight line in the universe. Somehow you come back on yourself. The other alternate theory of the Big Bang is that instead of a balloon, we have a plate that is infinite in, in extension that's becoming more infinite in extension. Both this idea and the plate, what do they have in common? Now, this is the discovery Humphreys made, and I think it's a profound discovery. Both the balloon and the plates have no edges. These are both surfaces where there's no edge to it. In other words, in, if you're an ant, you go around inside this thing, you never experience an edge, do you? Can you ever experience an edge in that surface? And if you have an infinite thing, you're never going to experience the edge either. Now, what Dr. Humphreys, you know, great ideas usually come from very simple questions. After studying that, Dr. Humphreys made the point, he says, you know, what's so interesting is why is it that every cosmology starts off with the assumption the universe has no edges? Why is that? Can't we conceive of a universe with an edge? Why is that every, get this and underline it, every cosmology today starts with the initial condition the universe doesn't have an edge. So Humphreys began to say, well, why do you guys believe that? And they said, oh, it's because of the cosmological principle. This class is going to run five, ten minutes late tonight, I'm sorry, but I've got to finish this. They said it's because of the cosmological principle. What's the cosmological principle? The cosmological principle is that the universe can't have edges because if it did, and we were out on a starry night, and you looked in that direction, and I looked in that direction, and the, and the, the earth were, say, closer, be closer to one edge than the other, what would, what would we see as far as star density? We would see less stars toward the edge side of the sky than the other side. But as a matter of fact, we don't observe that. Star density is the same wherever you look. So they say, obviously, the universe doesn't have an edge because if it did, the star density wouldn't be the same. Ah, but says Humphreys, you forgot one option. There's a, there's a way out of this. The way out is, if the earth were at the center of the universe, wouldn't it be true that you could look in any direction and see the same star density? Of course. What does Genesis say? What does the Genesis narrative teach? It teaches that first there was what in verse 1 and 2? The earth. The earth was without form and void. What did God do on the second day? Second day. First day he made light. What did he do on the second day? He made the heavens out from the earth. The Hebrew word is the rakia. The expanse. God expanded it out. And it wasn't until the fourth day that he populated the domain with stars. Remember we studied that text? What Humphreys is saying is that the reason why cosmologists believe in a boundless universe is theological. Look on the quote on page 120. 
the idea of the earth being at the center of the universe strongly smacks of purpose and is thus unpalatable to most theorists today who prefer to believe in a universe run by randomness. So it is simply assumed, get this, get this sentence, important sentence coming up here, watch the birdie. So it is simply assumed there is no center and no boundary. Do you ever read that in Newsweek magazine? Did you ever get that in a lecture in college? Amazing observation. That at the very starting, we've talked heavily in this course over the months, haven't we, about presuppositions? Now you're observing one operate. You want to know why we're all screwed up over here? Ask yourself, where do we start? We started over here with a boundless universe. Why did we pick a boundless universe? Because if we didn't, the only way we could play in star density is have the Earth at the center. Oh, we couldn't have that. That would make the Earth important. So we've eliminated that one right away. So that only leaves only other possibility. My model has got to begin with an unbounded universe. And what Humphreys points out is that once you start with an unbounded universe, you crank it through all the mathematical hairy mess of general theory of relativity, you come out with the Big Bang. So once you've, once you've started there, you're going to wind up with the Big Bang if the theory of relativity is correct. So Humphreys decided to play a little trick. He said, ha-ha, I am going to submit a different set of initial conditions to the general theory of relativity and watch what happens now. So he submitted not a boundless universe, he submitted a ball of water two light years in diameter, which he computed using the known mass of the universe and converting all molecules and atoms that are thought to be in the universe to H2O. Putting a ball two light years together like this, a sphere. And what Humphrey says, and I'm, I'm, I'm doing no justice to him doing it this fast, but I just want you to see the big idea, that on the second day, God took parts of that mass and he did this. He spread out the heavens. And everywhere in the Psalms and everywhere else you read, O oh God, thou hast thrown out the heavens and thou hast expanded. It's the very word. But what does the sixth day tell you at the end of the text in Genesis chapter 2? What is that famous reference that we said you want to keep your eye on the end, the last sentence, where it goes into the seventh day? What does it say God ceased from doing? ceased from his works, didn't he? Stopped. So he's no longer doing this, is he? This is once for all action. And what Humphreys does is he has an expanded universe. Not an expanding universe. An expanded universe. Ah, you say, but still, Dr. Humphreys, you haven't explained the apparent age. Ah, but Humphreys says, yes, I have. Yes, I have. Because the theory of relativity has a little clause in it. The general theory of relativity believes in something called time dilation. And it means that when gravity decreases, time speeds up. For example, you can take a clock at sea level and you put another one at Colorado, where the National Bureau of Standards clock is, and they do not run the same. 
one is subjected to stronger gravitational field than the other, and there's a minutia of difference. Well, what happens to that gravity as God expands all this mass that's once local out throughout the massive size of the universe? What do you suppose happens to the force of gravity? Decreases. What do you suppose happens to an observer who is riding the wave of the expansion? This guy's riding a rocket ship on the day that God expanded. Little angel, he's got his pot watch. So God says, expand, and so he walks away from the earth. What is he observing? Two angels. One guy sits back here on the earth, and he's got radio contact with this guy. He's clocking this, and he's clocking this. It turns out that the angel that's going like this, at the front end of the edge of the universe, is expanding out. His clock is going like this, speeding up like crazy. This guy sees a lapse of only 24 hours. So the light now begins to come back to us and has been coming back to us from that work of God when he expanded the universe. I won't fill in all the details except point out to you some lessons learned here. This man worked on this for 10 years. Believe me, the math in the general theory of relativity is hairy. Most of us will never get close to it, even those of us who have studied math. Coordinate transformations, tensor theory, all kinds of stuff gets involved in this. But it turns out, isn't it remarkable, that if you change one little starting point, the massive difference that happens, what does that teach you? Even if Humphreys is wrong, what does that already teach you about the so-called facts that you're being fed? It teaches you they're very speculative and very vulnerable to large-scale shifts based on small starting points. Now, there's one other man I want to, and this will run our class over five or ten minutes. I want to go to page 121 in the notes and introduce you to another man. This is Dr. Robert Herman. Dr. Humphreys is a physicist at Los Alamos Laboratories. New Mexico. He has patents on several things. He's been involved in high-energy laser research. He is a scientist of scientists. He's not some, you know, guy that's just taught Bible class three or four days. Dr. Herman is a theoretical mathematician at the Naval Academy. He is not at all well-known. He is very difficult to understand, but he has published papers for the last 15 years on his findings. And Dr. Herman has done a shrewd, shrewd thing as a Christian. What he has done is cleverly publish his math papers in national peer-reviewed math journals to get it accepted without revealing his theological agenda. Marvelous trick. The other side does that to us. Herman's doing it to them. So he's got all of his math accepted in peer-reviewed journals. Now, it's a difficult theory, but what Dr. Herman has says is this, that we are used to, in the universe of physics, of, of diagramming and describing things in terms of math functions, curves. We use something called calculus. And calculus is founded on 
continuity, that things, if you get down here in smaller and smaller and smaller little chunks, that you can always go down one case smaller. It's, it's the idea that if you can get a magnifying glass, a magnifying glass, a magnifying glass, and get smaller and smaller, you'll still see continuity. Or said another way, the universe can be described in terms of real numbers. Now, what are real numbers? For those of you who may not be too familiar with this, let me give an illustration. Real numbers aren't opposite to fake numbers. Okay? The Greeks ran into a problem because they did not know this and they believed in what they call rational numbers. What are rational numbers? Well, rational numbers are integers. One, two, three, four. Or they're fractions. One half, three fourths, and so on. Now, the Greeks liked that because they were rationalists and they believed at those. But then somebody came along with something like this. And that really scared them. Pi. Pi can't be described as a rational number. Uh-oh, said the Greeks. And up until very recently, very recently, I mean within several decades, there have been highly trained mathematicians who still refuse to believe in the existence of real numbers. They will accept only rational numbers. And if you think that's crazy, ask yourself this. There's not a computer you can use that uses real numbers. Every computer uses rational numbers. Every computer. There's not a computer and can never be a computer that uses anything except rational numbers. So maybe the mathematicians are right. Maybe real numbers don't exist. Maybe they, we just think they exist. But whatever, Herman's idea is that in nature, it is not true necessarily that real numbers describe it and is not provable. That in fact, what may happen as you go down in the scale is that you get jumps like this. That the universe is not smooth. And he cites as one very potent example something that's been known for a hundred years in physics called quantum theory, which says that the energies located around an atom are in one level or another. They don't transition. It's instantaneous. Discontinuity. And Herman says, how do you live with this? And physicists have had a problem. The universe can't be continuous and also discontinuous at the same time. Nobody has figured this out yet. It's a dilemma at the heart of science. What are the sort of the dirty underwear that's not talked about a lot? Well, what Herman has pointed out is that there's no way that you can get these two guys together unless you do something about it. And what is phenomenal is what that man has done to do something about it. And I want you to turn to Hebrews 11 because we're going to conclude with a scripture that will show you what he's done. But that's the theological emphasis. What Herman says is this. That you have the natural universe that has continuity in it. It has discontinuity in it. Those two conflict with one another and within the natural universe are never reconcilable. You never will be able to get these together. He's proved the theorems that says you can't. So what he has said is it is rational to assume there exists outside and around the natural universe another universe 
where there is perfect logic. There is perfect reason. And the logic and the reason trigger events inside the natural universe. And that explains, for example, why you have discontinuities inside the atom. It explains why you have suddenly things jump. There's no transition time. It's not true that you can see these things trans. If you only had a higher, higher camera speed, you can capture the transition. No. It's either yes, no, yes, no, period, on, off. And so he says, if the universe isn't chaotic, it must be rational. So there's a rational universe behind our universe that intrudes. And to make a long story short, what it also does, it affects the speed of light. So that the speed of light can suffer discontinuities. What is also true out of growing out of his theorems is that if this is the present time and you go backwards to the edge of that box, or I should say this way because of our diagram. Remember the edge of the box? I said you couldn't go back of it without observational data. What Dr. Herman's theorem points out is that beyond the end of that box, you have an infinite number of, of scenarios possible. And they can only be chosen purely on the basis of your philosophical inclination. In other words, there are an infinite number of cosmologies possible, all of which explain the observed data. Based on measurements of light, based on experiments done, you can never conceive of a physical experiment ever that can discern between the infinite number of possible scenarios. You know where he got his... his where he got some of this, of course, obviously from struggling with what everybody struggled with in the last hundred years in science between the real number, rational number dilemma, in particular in the area of physics. But he said what really got to him one day was this verse, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. Read this in the light of what we just said. As a Christian... What struck Dr. Herman was the last part of verse 3 of Hebrews 11. Things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. There is an outside intrusion happening in history. That the natural universe is not explainable in terms of itself. We can't construct a series of real numbers with a function line that's continuous. But it's constantly subject to outside influences. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1 for the grand source of it all. It talks about Jesus here in cha Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And the last half of verse 3, let's read this really slowly. This is, we're going to finish our class right here on this verse. What is the function that Jesus Christ is said in this verse to do with regard to the entire universe. Upholding, present tense, constantly upholding all things by what? The word of his power. What was it that he used to create? The word. What does he use to sustain the universe? The word. In terms of Dr. Herman's theory and his proofs, that logic and that reason that he has to have in order to make functions describe what's going on in physics, 
he has to rely on an outside source of logic. Outside of the human realm and outside of the measurable natural universe. Now, doesn't that interesting how it perfectly coincides with these texts of Scripture? See, this is some phenomenal and heavy stuff that these men are digging out. And I want to conclude by saying this. I am not arguing tonight that these guys have got the whole case knocked. Not that <laughs> naive. And they aren't either. But here's the difference between them and most people. Here we have two believers who are in the thick in their professional life where they work every day with math and physics, math and physics, math and physics, who are determined as believers to honor the Lord. Not like a lot of mousy people who are Christians, who are actually ashamed of the gospel and can invent 581 excuses why they don't have to follow the scripture when they're operating professionally. Not these guys. These guys are going to dig it out and they're going to get to the bottom of this thing and it's going to be the Word of God that triumphs over all. It's taken them years to do this and a lot of sweat and hard work. And they're still working on it. This stuff just goes on and on and on and on. But these guys are role models in my book for what Christians need to do in these areas. We aren't gifted. All of us aren't gifted to do this kind of work. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that when you read in Time Magazine Newsweek about facts, there's one thing you've learned in this class. You are sensitive enough now. You've tuned, hopefully I've tuned you, to think about presuppositions. And when you see somebody saying something's factual, think of the box. Ask yourself, is that about what's in the box or is that about what's outside of the box? And if it's outside of the box, what are the conjectures and speculations that are being used here? Think of Humphreys. And then when you struggle with the issue of how can the speed of light change? Or how could God have caused a flood to disrupt the planet in such a chaos that 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5-7 through 7 describe it not as a local flood in the Mesopotamian Valley, but describes it as a cosmic event that affected not just this planet, but the entire extraterrestrial universe. When you think of that, think of Herman. Can there be discontinuities? Of course. Are the discontinuities illogical? No, they're not. Can they be measured, however, in the natural, with the tools inside the natural universe? No, they can. Does that make them false? No, it doesn't. Because falsely and truthfulness lie outside of this natural universe. It's amazing. And ultimately, it goes back to how we started the class. In the beginning was the Word of God. Language. Language. Thought. A mind infinitely greater than ours, but somewhat alike ours. We think and we have to use universals. Never, might, always. And this being that is our creator, he thinks in terms of universals and causes his thoughts come into existence. That's the difference between him and us. And it's him that we worship. Father, we thank you that you are who you are. And we pray that as we live at this end of the 20th century, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will have the courage and the faith in your trustworthiness to think through what we are hearing around us, not necessarily to be super critical,
but in our hearts to take notice, to listen to our conscience, to listen to the text of Scripture, to avoid just naively taking in everything that goes under the name of fact before we subject it to a careful examination on the basis of our biblical faith. Help us do that in Christ's name. Amen. We ran late. Uh, I will be up here for five or ten minutes if you have questions. But I promised at the beginning that I'd have everybody out at nine o'clock on Thursday nights. So we'll keep that promise.